This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. More than 24.9 million people, adults, and children have been subjected to human trafficking around the world. Today, we talk with two area groups that are fighting this problem, The Well and Philadelphia Children's Alliance. Our newsmaker this week heads an anti-trafficking task force for the Salvation Army to help survivors and support them through their journey of healing. This is something that happens to the kids in our city and that we can make a difference through being aware of it. Our Philly Rising Changemaker this week is a Philadelphia student who helps young entrepreneurs through a new studio hub. I want them to have a safe place where they can be creative. It's a half hour not to be missed straight ahead on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. More than 24.9 million people, adults and children, have been subjected to human trafficking around the world, including here in the United States. That's both forced labor and forced sex. Traffickers often take advantage of instability or conflict to exploit others. During the COVID-19 pandemic, actually, traffickers continue to find ways to exploit people. With us today is Aaliyah Cummings. She is a therapist with Philadelphia Children's Alliance. PCA brings together a team of professionals to allow abused children to tell their story using a coordinated process in a safe and welcoming facility. Just to give you an example of just how busy they've been, here's some statistics. During fiscal year 2020, the Philadelphia Children's Alliance responded to 2,390 reports of child sexual abuse. They conducted over 1,300 forensic interviews. They supplied various support services to over 1,400 caregivers, referred over 900 children for mental health therapy. It goes on and on. Welcome, Aaliyah, to Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Now, your organization has such an important role advocating for and protecting uh, children. We want to learn more about your services. But first, let's discuss how you work to help victims of human trafficking. Now, many of the victims are children when it comes to human trafficking. That's something a lot of people don't realize. That's correct, right? Absolutely. I wear a few different hats and a few different roles within the work that I do with trafficked youth. So like you mentioned, most specifically, I do trauma-focused therapy with young people who have experienced some kind of trafficking or commercial sexual exploitation. Um, 
I'm trained in a variety of different models like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR. And absolutely, this is a issue and a crime that affects not only adults, but children. We know that based on a variety of different studies, the most common age of entry into specifically trafficker or pimp controlled trafficking Mm -hmm. is 12. And so I work with youth who are even younger than that sometimes, uh, as well as well up into 18, 19, 20 years old. So they're kind of that aging out age group as well. But this is an issue that affects younger children as well as preteens, teens, older teens. How prevalent is the problem of human trafficking here in uh, Philadelphia? It's absolutely an issue that happens in Philly. Unfortunately, trafficking is an issue that can affect just about any community. Wherever there is a demand for commercial sex, there is the possibility that children are at risk of being trafficked. So in Philadelphia, we know that our demand for commercial sex comes from both local residents, so people that live and and work and and are part of the community, but we also have folks through our international airport who are coming from across the country or even internationally who are also a part of that demand. And then that doesn't even really get into the complexities of online exploitation, which I know is something that's becoming increasingly concerning and scary to our parents during the pandemic as children are doing more online learning. This whole idea is just so uh, nerve wracking uh, when you think of the age of some of the kids that are involved in this. You said 12, but that it gets younger. How do these traffickers get a hold of these children in the first place? It's a really good question, and it's a really important question. A trafficker can be somebody that's known to that child. It can be a community member. It can be a family member. It can be a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. That's something that we see a lot where we have um, adult traffickers who are uh, engaging these young girls into what they perceive as romantic, loving relationships. And then the trafficker exploits that loving bond into something very twisted. This is a crime that affects both boys and girls. A lot of the youth I work with happen to be girls, I don't believe that that means we we aren't seeing this happen to boys as well. I would argue that there's probably just quite a few more obstacles and barriers to boys coming forward or being identified. But this is absolutely happening to all of not all of our kids, but all, all of our kids are vulnerable to this happening. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you said uh, a lot of the times um, the, the children know they're traffickers. We're always so focused on, you know, man in the bushes, uh, stranger danger. Mm. But you're talking family members. They automatically just trust them. Yeah, I feel like the bearer of bad news with that. But yeah. absolutely, like these are these are people that that you trust or that that young person trusts or that parents trust to leave their children in the care of or um, to allow to be around their kids. And that certainly is is a scary piece of it and, and is 
an important part of the child and the family's healing as well, because it impacts their feelings of trust where this wasn't done by a stranger. This was done by somebody that they knew and loved. Um, and now they have to rebuild their sense of safety and trust all over again. And I know that at-risk children are especially vulnerable. I, I guess these people, they find a vulnerability and then they go right in for the attack and exploit them. So a lot of the kids are already at-risk children. Yes. So I will always say and emphasize that this is something that can happen to any child. I can receive a referral or work with a family where it's a two-parent household and they're middle to upper class and they have all the resources in the world. And I can also, of course, work with under-resourced, underserved families and children as well. We know that racism, poverty, and sexism put our young people at higher risk for crimes, and that is including a crime like trafficking. Georgetown Law, a couple years ago, released a report. They coined this term, um, the adultification of Black girls. Mm -hmm. And this study found evidence that adults view Black girls as being older, knowing more about sex than the, their sort of white peers. And this was especially true starting at age five to 14. Why is it that events like the Super Bowl tend to be a venue or an event that, that brings traffickers in or there's a demand for, you know, child sex trafficking victims, so to speak? Why is that something that's attractive? Well, any kind of event that's bringing travelers in and in large groups, what we know about demand, what we know about like who is actually buying sex, particularly from children, is that many of these buyers are more likely to do it in a different community. So um, sometimes they're less likely to kind of do it in their own backyard, but they'll do it in somebody else's backyard. Right, right. What we also know about buyers is that buyers specifically of child sex trafficking is that they're more often than not situational abusers as opposed to sort of like full-blown pedophiles. So sometimes you have buyers that are specifically seeking out children. That definitely happens. But more often than not, buyers are what we would call a situational abuser. So somebody who doesn't really like care about anything to do with this young person or about like whether um, they're willing to kind of like take it at face value that this person is saying that they're an adult, even though I think you and I can look at this young person and be like, there's no way that she's a grown up, Mm. but that these are oftentimes situational abusers. And so um, I've seen that statistic about the Super Bowl. And and I, I don't know if the Super Bowl itself is like sort of this like hot spot for trafficking, but I do know that anything that's kind of bringing people in from all around and you have a large group of people that are sort of traveling to a new urban area that they might not come back to anytime soon, Mm -hmm. don't really have their own friends and family there, they're more likely to, to sort of take advantage of that situation. How are they marketing these kids? 
Sure. So, you know, it does exist in the dark web. That's definitely part of the crime of trafficking. I would also add to that, though, it happens in plain sight. Unfortunately, you know, it's happening in like social media apps that everybody has access to. It's oftentimes kind of happening more or less right in front of us and, and we don't even realize it. I've worked with a number of families where that young person was being trafficked out of her bedroom and the parents had no idea. How is that even possible? This isn't kind of like a specific client story, but it's like honestly so common that it it encompasses quite a few different people's experiences. But you can have a young person. And again, you know, let's say that this is a young person that has like middle to upper class, lots of resources, two parents, et cetera. Uh, And let's say that she's a like, quote unquote, good good kid, Mm -hmm. does good in school, good grades, good attendance, um, respectful, like all all those, all those things that, that we look for. She gets messaged on social media one day by a new guy and his picture is really cute. And they spend the next like six months messaging. They message every day. He gets her to open up about her like innermost insecurities. And he's like, I think you're beautiful. Like, you know, the girls at school who make fun of you, they have no idea what they're talking about. And they build what feels like an incredibly important emotional bond online over the course of months. And then he says, I want to see you. I want to meet up with you. Let's go to this party. In this hypothetical, again, she's, we're, we're kind of talking about a case where it's like all the resources is a kid that's like never snuck out before. Right. But this is the time she sneaks out and she says, okay, like just this one time, I really like him. I've known him a while now. I'll, I'll go do that. Um, She sneaks out with him. They go to the party and they're at the party for a little while. um, And she's having a good time. He like never leaves her. He takes good care of her, um, treats her with like respect in front of his friends, which makes her feel really special, all these things. And he says, you know, I want to go, I want to go to um, the bedroom upstairs. And she knows what that means, but she thinks like, I'm having like such a good time. Like maybe this is the right time. So she goes up there with him. She walks into the bedroom. He closes the door and locks it behind him. And he has a number of his friends in the bedroom and he has a video camera set up. And then they proceed to sexually assault her and they videotape the whole thing. And they say, if you don't do what I tell you to do, we're going to give this video to everyone, like your parents, your teachers, your classmates, you know, all those friends on social media that you introduced me to, like whatever it is, it's kind of different. And then he proceeds to set that kid up with dates every weekend. And she has to sneak out every weekend and be sort of trafficked and and sold to whichever buyers. And she has to comply and and listen to what this trafficker says or else he'll expose her. And then that goes on for months before anybody realizes what's happening because she's so scared of being outed. What are some of the red flags that let us know that perhaps a child is being trafficked? Anything that tells you that your child is suddenly seeming really different than their normal self. If your child was usually like very outgoing and kind of bubbly and is now more like reserved, 
major changes in their behavior, their self-esteem, like if they're suddenly like just experiencing a huge drop in their self-esteem. If this is a child who you've started to notice is like leaving home or leaving care without permission and is kind of like breaking those rules more. If you are noticing that this is a child that suddenly like has cash that you're like, I don't, I I don't know where you got that from. Like, where did this cash come from? If you have a child, if you're um, a loved one of of this child, a parent of this child or a teacher even, or just somebody in this child's life, and you notice that the child has like multiple cell phones, those are just a a handful of, of things to, of those like warning signs to look out for. But even more important than the warning signs, I would argue is like, some protective things that parents and loved ones can do is improve the communication that you have with your child about their online life. Mm. So normalize asking your child about their online life. I think kids sometimes get perceived as being really secretive about their online lives. And it has more to do in my experience with the child feeling like, well, my parents just don't get it. Like they don't even know what Instagram is. Mm -hmm. And so like a very concrete suggestion that I give parents is download any app and use any app that your child also uses. Mm -hmm. Don't let your child use smartphone app that you yourself aren't familiar with. And I also tell parents, ask your kids about their online lives the same way you ask them about school or sports or other parts of their lives. Ask them what games they're playing, who they're playing with, um, what they like about those friends and what that feels like for them. Anybody new that they met. Mm -hmm. There are so many opportunities for support and help and resources online as well. And so the answer isn't to say, like, never go online again, because that's just not realistic. But improve that communication so that the child feels comfortable to come to you and be like, hey, I'm talking to this new person and I don't know, I think I kind of like them, but um, they, they're they saying these things that make me like a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not ready for that. How, how do you know when you're ready to talk like that with somebody? Then you're going to be able to know what's happening way sooner and, and be able to step in and hopefully prevent. So important. Great points that you've made. And keeping the lines of communication open with your kids is definitely important. I have to say I'm a phone snatcher and I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) I have a 16 year old and I randomly just take the phone and and she knows I'm just going to go through it. And then, yeah, some things have been found. But my goodness, to even think about stumbling upon anything like that is just nerve wracking. But I'm glad you've walked us through that. Let's talk about the services that you offer for kids who have been trafficked. I know mental health is first and foremost, correct? Yeah. So I offer trauma-focused therapy for the children that I work with. I also have what I would call a court advocacy component of my role as well. So many of my youth are court involved, whether that's through dependency matters or delinquency matters. Um, So it's possible that this is a child who is going to be going to court once a month, once every couple of months to have updates made and conversations made about their case. And oftentimes their case is related to their experience of trafficking. And that can be really stressful 
helpful for young people. Philly has a sex trafficking specific courtroom and family court. Um, and I have a really good relationship with them where they're really welcoming to me and, and, and my ability to sort of support young people in the courtroom. Similarly in court, if I have a child who's involved as a victim witness in a criminal case against their trafficker or other abuser, I'll support them during that preliminary hearing process and that trial process if it goes to trial and sentencing if, if, they, if their abuser ends up getting sentenced. How can people get a hold of you and get more information about your organization? org. You can also find more information about us or find our main number. All right, Aaliyah Cummings. She is therapist with Philadelphia Children's Alliance. We've been talking about the fact that January is Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month. And uh, you, can, of course, can go to the website, org for more information. Aaliyah, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and and giving me this platform to talk about this issue. I appreciate that so much. 30 Seconds to Second Chances, brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Joe Pratt is grateful for the gift that keeps on giving. Every day I get up, I get to breathe. The retired Army major got a new set of lungs after years of suffering from COPD. They gave me a second chance in life. One out of every three on the transplant waiting list is African American. If you needed an organ, would you accept one? And if you answer yes, then why would you not be a donor? Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. We continue our conversation about Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month. Joining us now is Carla Clanigan. She is Program Director of The Well in Bucks County. The Well is a community for women in recovery from sexual assault, sexual exploitation, and sex trafficking. Their mission is to provide sanctuary, support services, and educational opportunities for women who have been forced to engage in non-consexual sex acts and sexually exploited women. Welcome, Carla, to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me about the condition that the women who come to you are in. Carla, where are they mentally? So that's a tough question. But mentally, the ladies feel very defeated. Their self-esteem is usually non-existent. They also have serious issues with trust. And they feel like they're not worth anything. So they're worthless. Wow. So they're broken. They're just pretty much they're broken. completely broken. Let's talk about that a little bit. Is there any particular story or stories that come to mind with regards to the people that you've helped and some of the survivors? There actually are, are probably two stories that really stand out to me. One is definitely a, a, a really good success story. Um, and one ended in death. What I will say is their two stories stand out for two reasons. The one woman, her story is what probably most people think of when they think of human trafficking or sexual exploitation. She came to us because she was working in a strip club and she went to uh, another state to do some other work in a strip club. Um, She ended up getting kidnapped and held at gunpoint and was trafficked for a couple weeks and was rescued by a wonderful organization that recognized that she did not belong at the truck stop. And so she was able to find her way back home and the 
organization, Peace Promise, was able to then get her over to us at the well. And the reason why her story is a success story is because it was partnerships with other organizations. So it was a collaboration between organizations, a national organization, um, and we were able to really work with her and get her to independent living, which she is doing now. And she has completed school. She is doing very well. She has her own apartment and she's living um, the life that she always wanted to live. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, you said that she was trafficked for a few weeks, but geez, that's all it takes. That's a traumatic experience. It definitely is. When you when you think of sex trafficking, it's literally being raped over and over and over again, multiple times a day. So when we talk about someone being sex trafficked for a day or a week or a year or many years, which is often the case, um, it's definitely not a light thing. But when you think of it as being raped that many times a day, that's when you put it in perspective like, okay, that's traumatic. Yeah. Yes. And so many of the ladies that come to us um, have a history or of a childhood um, of abuse. And so this young lady had uh, been molested at a very young age and by family friend and came to us very broken, feeling worthless. And we were really able to work with her for a couple of years, actually. But In the end, she had some aha moments is what I like to call them. Mm. And she realized that as a young child being molested um, and told to keep that a secret is how she ended up into the life of escorting. Because Mm. as an escort, she goes into houses. It's a secret. Many times the family, the wife, the, the whoever doesn't know that she's there. It's in hotels. It's behind closed doors. So that all matched up with being molested behind closed doors and told to keep it a secret. But this young woman, when she started to discover that that one incident stemmed all of these problems and this life of, of escorting and this life of being trafficked, as well as having an addiction. It did something to her in a way that caused her to regress. Long story short, it led her back into the life and, and she ended up dying. That's sad. And it's an example of what happens when you have unresolved trauma. Exactly. It comes out in all kinds of different ways. Yes. And we, you know, we talk about trauma a lot. I think that's like a buzzword now. Um, But we need to talk about complex trauma. We need to talk about this is not just a one incident. For example, I had a car accident. That's trauma. Mm -hmm. But that was a car accident. It, It adjusted the way that I drive and how I feel about being on the road. But this is complex trauma when it's the the traumatic event is happening over and over and over right. again. Compounded, there is yeah. definitely a difference in treatment when you're working with someone with complex trauma. Wow. And at the well, you know, we're, we're working very hard on all of those things to get the ladies again to um, restoration and healing and recovery and to get them the, to have peace in their life and feel worth it. I understand that women of color and transgender women uh, as well are especially at risk uh, for trafficking. Are you seeing that at the well? We do see that. And across the board, it's because of the resources that typically are not available in those communities that have high population of women of color, you know, black and brown women. And they are also very underreported. And so, you know, 
the data for sex trafficking or human trafficking is not always um, representative of what's actually happening and where it's actually happening because of that. You, in the beginning, mentioned trust. And uh, I'm assuming that trust is a pretty big deal when it comes to administering uh, these types of services, especially when you're offering someone a place to live. How do you go about earning the trust of people who are just so broken when they come to you? It's consistent, being consistent in their lives, um, saying and only saying what you actually are capable of doing, not making promises, right? Because when we make promises, anything could come, come up to cause that promise to be broken. So me, as well as my staff, we don't make promises. Mm. We speak about the things that we actually can do. And we speak about what we, um, how we can do that. But we have to be relational. And the way to build relationship is communication. I have an open door policy at the well, and the ladies can come and talk to me about anything. And my job is to be open for that communication, but to also teach them how to communicate. When they come to the well, the first thing I tell them is this is a safe place and this is where you can use your voice. Because typically they're not able to express any kind of feelings without it coming with a beating of some sort, right? Mm. Um, Some sort of penalty or punishment. So I am very strategic in how I build relationship with our communication and empowering them to use their voice. Are the women recommended to you? I'm trying to figure out how exactly they come to the well. So we get recommendations or referrals from all over the country, several different ways, right? So we can get recommendations or referrals from the local law enforcement, from the jails, from other organizations and other houses. Um, It may be a domestic violence shelter, maybe a drug and alcohol rehab where they're in counseling and they have that moment where they shared that they were trafficked. We're a long-term residential house, so they can stay with us for two years. Our program is quite comprehensive. We have the ability to bring them in and offer them community empowerment through our Worth It program, long-term living through the well, and now we are building Melanie's house, which is our new graduate housing, which is apartment living. Awesome. Let's talk more about what's needed to help get these lives back on track. One of the things that drew me to um, this position is that Worthwhile Wear offers, again, like I said, comprehensive services so we can meet them in the community and offer them empowerment um, and education and resources for those survivors who don't need housing. And then for those who do need housing, we can bring them to the well, offer them this long-term housing, and then while they're there, part of our services is economic sufficiency. And so we own two thrift stores. Well, one thrift store is actually, will be up and running in February. Okay. (laughs) Um, But we offer them employment at our thrift stores. And so while they're living at the well, they have an opportunity to begin a savings account um, by working for us. And then when they get the skills and they're ready, they can then find an outside job. But at the well, we offer life skills training, we offer employment um, education, we offer 
therapy, trauma therapy, which is really, really huge. We could not exist without being able to offer that therapy and to um, address the trauma that they have faced. Of course, of course. And of course, they have to learn or in some cases relearn some basic life skills that many of us take for granted. Oh, yes. With our staff, they are taught the proper way to clean. They're taught basic cooking skills. And for those who know how to cook, we can even teach them advanced cooking skills. (laughs) Um, We do art projects with them. We find their creative side. Um, We partner with some other local organizations to offer things like equine therapy, art therapy, just like a wide array of things. One thing that I will tell you and that I would love for your audience to understand is every person that comes to the well is treated as an individual. Mm -hmm. So we just don't have like these blanket um, programming that that everyone has to do. We really cater to the individual. So whatever their needs are, whatever their goals are, whatever they need to work on or whatever things have happened to them, we want to address them holistically. Okay. And we are a faith-based organization. So it also allows us to address that with them, the spiritual things with them. So that that's also awesome, but we definitely accept people from all walks of life. Um, and and all all faiths. Talk about the mentorship that's offered uh, to the women. How does that work? Are they paired up with one particular person? So the the mentor program was created a couple years ago, and what that is is each person that comes to the well, um, we have a list of volunteers that are interested in being mentors, as well as staff, and. When we pair them up, it's really them selecting someone who they trust and who they built a relationship with already. Um, And what that looks like is the ladies pair up with someone and that person who is now a mentor goes through mentorship training and then they're able to take them out, show them the world, introduce them to other supports. We have learned that building a support system while in our program is beneficial to the ladies and it's sustaining. It keeps them from returning to the life when they're living independently and they're not able to deal with whatever may be happening in life, right? Because we know that life happens. Yes. Yes, it does. For all of us, actually. Absolutely. (laughs) It definitely does. (laughs) All right. So you did mention Melanie's house, which uh, I guess you said is new housing. Tell us a little bit more about Melanie's house. This is so exciting. (laughs) Um, We have been offered an opportunity to um, have a graduate program that is called Melanie's House. When the ladies at the well have reached their final phase, which is the leadership phase, and they have a full-time job, they're able to move into Melanie's House. Melanie's House is three apartments um, that will be fully furnished, including washer and dryer, um, where they will live independently. Mm. However, they will not be far removed from the well, meaning they will still receive case management services and therapy services, and they will still be a part of the family. And I know that a lot of the women may need help with the legal system, depending on, you know, you know what brought them there in the first place. Do they have help navigating that system as well? Yes. Um, 
I feel like they're blessed and we're blessed because I actually came from the criminal justice system. Ah. I worked in prison reentry for many, many years. And so I'm able to assist them in navigating whatever is happening with them in the criminal justice system. So we will attend court with them. We will work with them with the drug court team in Bucks County. We work with Philadelphia County Jail as well as Montgomery County's probation department. And so if they're on probation or parole, we assist them with going to those meetings, whatever their list is that they have to complete for probation or parole or to get off. We work with them with that drug court, behavior health court. Mm -hmm. We're able to assist them to get through that court system. The goal is to get through it and get off of probation. Carla, how can people find out more about the well? To learn more about the well, they can just go to our website. It's www.worthwhilewear.org. Learn more about our well program. Learn more about the Worth It program. There's pictures of staff. And there's also survivor stories on there. That's awesome. That's awesome. We've been talking with Carla Clanigan, Program Director of the Well in Bucks County. Carla, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Heather LaRocca heads the New Day's Anti-Trafficking Task Force for the Salvation Army, offering intensive, comprehensive mobile case management to survivors, engaging with them and supporting them through their journey of healing. Here's Sharon Day Howard with more. Human trafficking isn't unique to Philadelphia. It's a global issue with a long reach. But what is unique is how Philadelphia takes the problem head on with a multi-layered approach, beginning with partnerships, partnerships that foster a successful road to sustained healing. Heather LaRocca, the director of A New Day to Stop Trafficking with the Salvation Army, has been working closely with survivors for decades and describes the program as a consistently evolving network. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Heather. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you say the program is more than just about offering resources to survivors. It's about building trust. And you do that by growing with the community that you serve. Yeah, so we have a variety of programs that we do under that New Day to Stop Trafficking umbrella. We started out in 2010 as a drop-in center in the Kensington area of Philadelphia, and that has grown, you know, since 2010. So at this point, we serve up around 50 women a day um, who come in and get their basic needs met. So they might get a shower, go to the bathroom, get food, clothing, um, and just be in out of the elements and be in a safe place where folks have really been building relationships with them and have that relationship. We know most of the women that come in by name. And at the drop-in center last year, last fiscal year, we served 775 different individuals. And that was through being closed for a time due to the pandemic and things like that. So 
that's our drop-in center. And then at the drop-in center, we have case managers who are able to then support folks in taking maybe a next step that they are ready for. And for some of the women that you serve, what does that next step look like? So maybe that's getting into shelter. Maybe that's getting a housing resource. It could also be getting into treatment. So like detox or, you know, a treatment program or some other, you know, depending on what their goals are. And so we've had a significant number of folks, you know, enter that program as well and get that extra support from the drop-in center. Mm -hmm. But from there, we also have a mobile case management program that also partners with law enforcement in the Philadelphia Anti-Trafficking Task Force, as well as we support in a Montgomery County Anti-Trafficking Task Force. They're really boots on the ground working with survivors of trafficking, often that have been identified through law enforcement or child welfare or court system. And they are really just walking alongside survivors, helping them get the next step, helping them meet their goals. And it can look very different. We work with youth in that program. We work with adult survivors, labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And you have some other initiatives, ones that are working mostly with children, youth. We're also involved in an initiative called RAPCORT, which stands for Working to Restore Adolescence Power. And that's a specialty court um, in Philadelphia in the family court system that's for specifically for survivors of trafficking. Um, and so we work with the youth there where the... Um, victim specialists in the courtroom, offering technical assistance and just really supporting with like whatever their goals might be, whatever support they need. So let's talk about the people you're working with, the people that you're offering these resources to, because sometimes this isn't always just their first or second chance. This may be their third or fourth chance. Yeah. And it kind of depends on the program, but no matter which program you're talking about or looking at, we're working with folks who are either at high risk for trafficking or have that experience of being trafficked. So it's individuals who really have had their freedom taken from from them and have been exploited often, you know, in sex trafficking, but also in labor trafficking or labor services. And so, yeah, we're really working with those folks. And, you know, that can look like a kid who is maybe trafficked by their parents, you know, has a lifetime of, you know, childhood abuse. And now they're, you know, a teenager and maybe they're running the streets or, you know, experiencing, you know, struggling with substance use. And, you know, we're working with them and just supporting them, building that relationship and having them know that somebody cares about them. It could also look like an adult who is maybe trafficked as a kid, again, but is now on the streets of Kensington, really struggling with homelessness, substance use, continues to experience trafficking, maybe engaged in sex work, and also, yeah, just experiencing other victimizations that come with being a female identified person on the street. And so we're, again, really meeting them at their basic needs and supporting them. And we really trust that they know what they need and want, and we really try to support them. And we're on the ground with them. We're at court. We're sitting with them while they wait to get into detox. We're, um, you know, visiting them if they're a kid and they're in placement. And you said the part Partnerships are really important in all of this, not just the partnerships that you build with the survivors, but the partnerships you've built with the Philadelphia police, with the DA's office, this multi-layered approach that you've all taken. It's almost as if you've built your own village because you said it takes a village. Yes, we are the you know nonprofit who's at the head of the Philadelphia Anti-Trafficking Task Force, which is that partnership with the DA's office, U.S. Attorney's office, our federal law enforcement partners, FBI and HSI, and then also Philadelphia police, specifically their SVU department, Special Victim unit. And so as they are working with survivors identified through investigations who might be recovered in an investigation, they will refer them to us. And we have a 24-7 hotline that's available to law enforcement to support a victim, you know, in the middle of the night who might need clothing and a phone and food. So, you know, we'll, we'll respond through our hotline, be on site, usually, you know, at the SVU or wherever that safe place is, um, and really offer that like on the ground support, as well as again, just connect with them, be that listening ear that's not law enforcement, that's not 
not child welfare. That's not, you know, this other organization that has like other objectives as far as safety, you know, and things like that. Like Mm -hmm. we're really able to build that relationship and offer that support. Now the partnership with the client, you said this is also multifaceted because it really depends not just on being there, but being consistently there. So with this population, with folks who've experienced trafficking, um, they're often, you know, have experienced a lifetime of abuse, a lifetime of trauma. Um, and they, are, it's very hard to have a meeting in an office, like show up at, you know, 12 p.m. and we'll meet from 12 to 1 and that will be our session, you know. So we really, again, meet them where they're at physically and emotionally. We're also not, you know, swooping in and trying to tell them, oh, did you know that you're a trafficking victim? Let me help you. Here's what we're going to do to help you. You know, we really walk in and we partner with them. What do you need? Do you need food? Do you need a phone? Do you need clothes? Can I run to, to the store and grab you underwear and socks. We really just meet in that moment and what they need. And then we walk alongside them. So that initial stage is really just about building that relationship and meeting their basic needs. And then it's what do you need from here? Like what, you know, what's your next step? What kind of supports do you need? Is it getting into a shelter or is it, you know, just again, it could just be building that relationship. And we really see this as long day. I think earlier you said, you know, someone might, you know, this might be a second or third chance, you know, but sometimes it's like fifth and 10th, you know, this is the long game. We have clients that we've been working with for over, a, you know, our organization's been around for around a decade. And we have clients that we still connect with, we still support in their journey, um, whatever it looks like now. So what does one of these journeys look like? And how does your organization step in to really help on an individual basis? So again, you know, it might be someone who was recovered, you know, through a, let's say a SVU investigation. So maybe a teenager who recovered, you know, doing dates. Um, and then it was found out that they were a juvenile, that they were a child. And so, and sorry, by dates, I mean, you know, sex work. And if you're under the age of 18 and engaged in, in sex work, you are a trafficking victim. So, you know, they we might get referred this person through SVU who would just let us know that we have a survivor our case manager would meet them at SVU again offer that that basic need that basic support and then really walk them through the court process because you know at this point usually child welfare is going to be involved you know they might be in placement and they might really struggle in placement and they might be pretty angry and you know their parents might not be um, connected to them or if they are their parents are also struggling and so it's really just building that relationship supporting them walking them through you know if they are angry and they're they're getting in a fight at the group home or you know and they're um treatment facility, you know, meeting with them, talking them through that, talking them through their desire to run and and to leave the system, supporting them in, you know, making a choice that's safest for them and just continuing to walk alongside them. And we've seen how we've had, you know, youth and, you know, go into our transitional housing program. And then recently we had a youth who graduated from high school while in our transitional housing program and now is in college and she still calls and, you know, and visits and, and lets us know how she's doing. So. And you have a lot of programs, one in particular that's aimed towards youth. Yeah, so it was the Working to Restore Adolescence Power or RAP Court, and that is a diversionary court. So it's a it's essentially a specialty court within so kids who have a delinquent or dependent case, so they're involved in child welfare or they have charges, and they get funneled into this court that is trauma informed. So, and what that means is that the judge doesn't sit up at the podium with her robe on; she sits down at a table, and the whole team for this kid sits at that table with the kid. And so, you know, it's a child, it's the lawyers, and it's maybe the parent, and It's, you know, us, if we're working with them and supporting them, the therapist, you know, it's all the folks kind of sitting around and really just asking this kid, like, how can we help you? How can we support you? And we meet more frequently than a regular, you know, family court situation and really just make sure that we're eyes, that we're all understanding what's going on with this kid and how we can support them. And you say the needs for a youth who's involved in sex trafficking is very different from an adult. 
Yeah. I mean, with the youth, I think, you know, they're going to have that added safety issues around them being a kid and not being able to make those choices for themselves. They often can't choose where they're going to live and where they're going to be because either, you know, they have a parent who's making those choices or they have the child welfare, you know, often it's the child welfare system placing them somewhere that they're deeming is safe. So with a kid, it's just building that trust and rapport and being someone outside of the system that can care for them and build that relationship. And it's, you know, really helping them think through decisions making because you know especially with youth that that's very challenging especially if you've had a history of trauma I mean we know like what trauma does the brain like decision making can be very challenging so again it's really just um, helping them kind of slow down those trauma responses you know make choices about how they're going to react to the like I was saying earlier the group home fight or you know things like that but with adults it's a little bit different right with an adult it can you know they have obviously more agency like over their choices and what they can and can't do you know at both levels we still try to have an empowerment approach to like what it is that they want. But of course, with an adult, they actually can make those choices. If they've had a lifetime of trauma, they often might have other things going on, such as like a substance use disorder, and they might really be struggling with that. So it's really supporting them and getting, helping them get into treatment and walking alongside them as they're in treatment. And when they exit treatment, trying to help them, you know, in their sobriety goals or, you know, whatever that looks like post-treatment. And I'm assuming that the survivors are going to need a lot of support, emotional and psychological. Yeah, I would say that's definitely key. And I keep saying relationship building, rapport, meeting them where they're at, you know, and I'm saying all that because really the most important thing about about working with survivors of trafficking is building that trust and rapport in that relationship. Again, like we'll sit with someone, we'll, you know, for hours while they wait to get into shelter or to treatment, go with them to get an ID. You know, we're just literally physically walking alongside them. And that builds that emotional trust and support because we're showing that like we're willing to show up, we're willing to be here with you, or we're not just going to give you a number and say, call it, you can get into treatment. You know, we're like, no, let's go with you. Let me sit with you. And then when they experience a barrier, maybe they're triggered in the waiting room, we can sit with them and we, you know, all of our staff are trained in trauma and understanding trauma response and, and how to do things like they're called grounding techniques or things to really bring someone out of that trauma response. And we just find that this population really needs that because they often have experienced that maybe childhood sexual abuse and then adult trafficking. And then now they're on the street and, you know, having other issues that come with that. So we really just see these very complex levels of trauma that they've experienced. So trafficking and sex trafficking, how does that really show itself in Philadelphia compared to other cities and states? We definitely have like a wide view of that because our varying programs, I've been talking about youth and working with youth in Rapport, but then we also are in the Kensington area and folks who are, you know, involved in sex work and then and trafficking in the Kensington area that's also wrapped up often with their um, substance use. So, you know, I would say with with kids, it's a lot of times traffickers targeting kids who are in the system, kids who have a history of abuse um, and kids who have those vulnerabilities. Um, and we definitely see that in Philly. Um, and then again, it's the um, folks who are experiencing street homelessness, um, substance use disorder. Um, we often see, you know, traffickers preying on that, um, preying on, you know, controlling access to someone's substance um, substances in order to control them. Um, it's, you know, honestly, like one of the easiest ways to control somebody who has, a, has an addiction is to control their access to that. And one of the prosecuted, recent prosecuted cases in the last few years in Philly was just that. It was a trafficker in Kensington who was trafficking a group of women and controlling their access to substances in order to traffic them. And before the pandemic, your drop-in center, it was a communal space. What did you do after the pandemic? How have you adjusted? 
in the height of the pandemic, unfortunately, we did have to shut our drop-in center down for a few months. Um, we did pivot and start participating in some of the um, like outdoor meals and you know things like that that other our other partners and other drop-in centers were doing. Um, and then we were able to reopen, um, and we kind of just slowly we started reopening outside and offering our services outside. Um, and then we kind of slowly started bringing folks in and then we slowly kind of brought back um, different services sort of as we went. Um, and so at this point, we are offering all the same services that we offered pre-pandemic, which are, you know, the things that I mentioned earlier. We even brought our couches back recently because, you know, for a while we, we didn't have the couches in our drop-in center because we didn't, you know, we were trying to keep like people moving and not like congregating. Um, so at this point we are offering all those services. I would, before the pandemic, we would see up to 80 women in a day, um, sometimes even over that, over a hundred. Um, and now we're averaging around, you know, 40 to 50 in a day. So we certainly have a reduced capacity. We don't let as many folks into the building at a time as we used to. Um, and we have a lot of, you know, masks required, you know, taking a temperature at the door, doing a screening, um, things like that in order to preserve that safety. The Salvation Army has been doing this work for a long time. Over the years, how have the needs of the survivors evolved as the opioid epidemic has really taken hold of Philadelphia? And how have you evolved with them? I mean, that's a challenging one because the, the anti-trafficking movement is also, you know, kind of we've we've sort of grown along with that. Um, and I think as we've grown, we've sort of realized more and more pieces of it. I would say that the opioid crisis in Kensington is a huge vulnerability for women um, there. And so I would say that, you know, along with a lot of other city partners, we're really looking at that um, and the intersection of substance use. You know, we've um, recently started doing drug and alcohol case management and billing through Medicaid in order to make sure that we're offering that service to our folks in the Kensington area. So I definitely say that opioid crisis. And then you're also seeing the kids of the adults who, you know, were experiencing the opioid um, epidemic. And then now we're seeing those kids who maybe were trafficked as a result of their parents' use. So maybe their parent traded them or just because they were around, you know, individuals that, you know, made, it made them more vulnerable. You know, we've seen, we've seen the kids now of adults that we've worked with experiencing trafficking. Um, and so I think it's for us just always trying to look at the need, always trying to look at the vulnerabilities and see what it is that we can do to meet that need. Um, so we've recently um, expanded our transitional housing program. We're going to be moving that program, which was eight beds. It'll be 16 beds. And we've expanded our housing assistance dollars to try to really help Help with the housing crisis, especially, you know, during the pandemic and play someday post pandemic. Also just looking at how we as a criminal justice system are looking at prostitution. We have a police assisted diversion program. So when Philadelphia police do arrest folks for the crime of prostitution, they can be diverted to us, to our PAD program for social services and support. So again, instead of that criminal justice response to prostitution, it's a victim services response. And how can we support you? And again, meeting them, you know, in that moment, trying to prevent them from getting involved in a criminal justice system. So that's another way that we've sort of evolved. So you did touch on this a bit. How prevention plays such a big role in all of this? So we have a survivor advisory board for the New Day program made up of survivors of trafficking, some of which, you know, maybe have been clients of ours, some of which who are staff, and then some just community members who, you know, have joined this group. And they are really passionate about prevention. You know, having been survivors themselves, they're so passionate, especially about youth and really preventing this. You know, I think they see themselves in like, if some Someone had come in and like taught me about trafficking and taught me the signs and taught me um, even for me to understand my own vulnerabilities. Um, I think they just really are passionate about that. So we're really excited about that passion and 
hoping even to to look out for some you know funding and prevention dollars to to do more education and training and again to really specifically look at youth um, as they're super vulnerable for many reasons um, to trafficking and so again this survivor advisory board is, has had a particular drive to reach that population and to look at prevention so what are some of the signs that we should be looking for when it comes to victims of sex trafficking the signs that that we think are important to pay attention to is you know someone who might seem particularly fearful or anxious someone uh, a younger person accompanied by an older partner a significantly older partner someone who might especially when we're talking about youth who might not be particularly like dressed for the weather or, you know, be in a situation where it looks like there's a mismatch between, you know, the environment and and how they're dressed or what, you know, access to the clothing that they have. Someone who maybe is working where they live. So someone, you know, who doesn't seem to ever leave the place that they work. Someone who doesn't have access to their documents, doesn't have access to their ID. Someone who doesn't know where they actually are. They don't know maybe what area of the city they're in or they don't know what even area of the country they're in because sometimes folks are trafficked from other countries or even just traffic throughout the U.S. Child who's not in school, a child who's maybe, you know, on the street instead of in school. And for kids, it would be, you know, anyone who has signs of being involved in sex work or anything like that, because someone who's under the age of 18 who is involved in exchanging something of value for sex is considered a trafficking victim. So going forward, what does Philly really need to do legislatively to solve the problem of human trafficking? And can it be done? A choice that we kind of all have to make as far as prioritizing this issue. Moving forward, Forward, I think one very important piece is for folks to understand that this is something that happens to the kids in our city and this is something that happens to vulnerable individuals and that we can make a difference. We can prevent it through being aware of it and making sure that people understand the signs. And we can really look at legislation that's looking at not penalizing folks who are selling sex, but looking at penalizing those who are buying and really looking at the demand side of trafficking because there are a group of individuals, let's, you know, to be real, who are willing to buy sex from kids, from vulnerable trafficked individuals. And so really looking at where's the demand coming from that's driving trafficking. You've given us a lot to think about, Heather. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. If you know of someone who you think may be involved in human trafficking and needs help, call the Salvation Army Human Trafficking Hotline at 267-838-5866. And for the National Trafficking Hotline, text HELP to be free. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Deborah Advanced Behavioral Health. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. I'm Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker, Tyler Riddick. She's a 21-year-old Germantown native, and she's already done some pretty cool things, including opening up this new creative studio hub in the Fishtown area. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. So tell us, you have a very diverse creative background. How did this lead you to starting High Level Studios? So when I was growing up, I was always into music. Like my mom had me in piano lessons, guitar, dance, pretty much everything related to like creativity and arts. So as I was getting older, when I was in the 12th grade, I actually went to a school called the U School where they had a um, photography class 
that was my home right there. So I just took off with it. That actually me doing that on the side actually created more opportunities for myself. And who inspired that entrepreneurial spirit in you? Mr. Reed from the youth school, too. He was actually one of my teachers. He actually got me started with really, as far as like my business structure and branding myself as IT, the young prodigy, because he has a a class, small business side hustle accelerator, where I actually went through his, his class. And after going through it, I learned a whole lot of stuff. And I learned that I needed a whole lot of holes to be filled. So that was good. Also, like a mentorship opportunity. So, Tyler, it sounds like you have had a nice bit of success and you're still very young. What's that like and how has your community in Germantown responded to that? It's awesome. I actually feel like I'm actually a light kind of. And that's what I try to be like. I kind of like always pray and ask, God, can you use me as an example and just like show these young kids that it's more out here than just the streets. Like you can take your creative skills and actually make money and be successful from doing these things. Also in the 12th grade, I lost a friend to gun violence and he, he actually passed by saving the other kids that were outside during the shootout. At the time I was 17 years old and he was 16 and his name is Jock Custis. So that actually impacted me a lot to kind of, start being a role model for these younger kids out here. Because a lot of people ask me, especially in my neighborhood too, like I could just be walking down the street and they'll be like, yo, how do you do such and such with the cameras? So I was just like, I'm going to just start a class and just teach others. And then I also wanted to be like a positive role model for the youth too. So I want them to have a safe place where they can be creative in themselves and not have to worry about anything on the outside. So what is your advice to other young people trying to find their path? Just keep going. You just got to stick to it. And if it's really instilled in your heart and if it's really your passion, things are going to fall in line for you automatically. Tyler Riddick, photographer, videographer, creator of High Level Studios in Fishtown. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for hashtag Bridging Philly. You can find the full story about Tyler and her new creative studio hub on KYWnewsradio.com. That's it for our Philly Rising Changemaker this week. I'm Antoinette Lee. If you know someone we should highlight next, please reach out. You can reach me at A-R-Lee on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, and please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.